This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Entner. In this week's episode, we continue our investigation of the challenges and opportunities digital distribution has introduced to public media with a conversation with John Shields. John is a Knight Wallace Fellow here at the University of Michigan's Wallace House, working on a study plan that explores the loss of public trust in broadcast media. He spent 14 years working for the BBC as commissioning editor for Today at BBC4, at the BBC's Washington and Jerusalem bureaus, and has worked on co-productions with American Public Media's Marketplace. John, welcome to Media Business Matters. Thank you for having me. Now, as we started this series, we were pleased to have the opportunity to have someone in studio to provide a non-U.S. vantage point on the issues that we've been exploring. The BBC is a far more robust public broadcasting organization than the one we're familiar with in the U.S., actually starting to think in terms of public media instead of just public broadcasting. To start off, John, how would you explain the BBC to Americans that are only familiar with U.S. public broadcasting? Probably the easiest way to do that is instead of describing the huge variety of output that the BBC has is to explain where we get our money from. Um, So the vast majority of BBC funding comes from something called the TV licence, which is uh, effectively a a levy on... uh, It used to be TVs in every household that has a TV. Now it includes anyone who watches, who downloads BBC media on their computers... Mm -hmm. So that's pretty much every household in the UK has to sign up to the BBC in in some form. You you effectively have to opt out and say that you don't watch any BBC if you don't want to pay that. So that can give you some perception of how uh, dominant, I guess, the BBC is uh, domestically in the UK in terms of uh, media across online, TV, radio, obviously... Then you switch when you switch to the international perspective. The BBC is among the big mm-hmm. players, certainly in news and entertainment and drama and so forth. And so here in the states, we're familiar with a single U.S. PBS television service. How how many channels does the BBC touch, just in the television realm? The internationally focused, you have BBC World TV, and then you have um, BBC America, which is a branch of that. And domestically in the UK. Uh, there's a, uh, if anyone remembers Austin Powers, there was a famous Austin Powers joke about the BBCs going up one, two, three, four, all through eight, and that joke actually pre preceded that almost happening. So uh, I grew up with BBC One and BBC Two on terrestrial TV, and then they added, um, I guess, a generation ago, BBC Three and Four, which are now um, online more than um, uh, domestically. And it's, sorry to ask you a statistic off the top of your head, but in Britain, like what percentage of the audience is watching BBC versus a commercial service? Uh, well, the, the the bit I know the best is radio. Okay. So I'm I work at uh, the morning, the main morning news radio show, uh, which is I, I guess the kind of equivalent of NPR's morning mm-hmm. edition, but the it's mu- it's more. Dominant, I guess, mm-hmm. than that, because we have an audience now. Interestingly, for radio, which is supposed to have been dead ages ago, we now have a record audience of seven million, and that's in a country of sixty million. Right. So that's a big slice of the adult. It's what ten, twelve percent audience. Right yeah, um, and interestingly as well, that's 
tends to be across the political divide. I mean, we can get into this later, but that's the, the balancing act that the BBC has to, under the rules of its mm-hmm. charter, mm-hmm. Uh, abide by impartiality and appeal to everyone. So that that on the on the radio news side only, that will give you a, a sense of, of how the BBC is positioned. And to put that in conversation with uh, NPR, Lynette said, what, we're, they're at about 10 to... 12 million? Was that the number she threw out there? In, in that range, and that's in the U.S. is 115 million households, so percentage-wise, it's smaller. Yeah. Um, but in still, even 10 million in the States is, is a good number. One of the, the big topics uh, across all of our podcasts, uh, especially these related to public media, have been uh, questions about how digital distribution has been affecting different media industries. And so can you talk a bit about how the arrival of digital distribution uh, has been handled by the BBC? Uh, if you want to just stick to radio, that's sure. great. Sure. I mean, the, the BBC generally, I think, um, has uh, in, internally people are pretty proud of how mm. we've dodged the headwinds, if that's, if that's the right phrase. I mean, thinking about it in broadly, um, I mean, I'm not a corporate spokesperson, but to me, someone working there, the things that kind of stand out as key innovations mm-hmm. that kind of set us in good stead were so 1997 was when the BBC News website was launched so that was uh, and it was well designed won a bunch of awards that was fairly um, early and it was yeah. fairly early so there's um it was we were kind of ahead of the game yeah. there so in 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 good shape and then the BBC uh, iPlayer uh, which is the streaming service uh, that was Christmas 2007, I think. So mm-hmm. that's been with us 10 years. Mm-hmm. And it predated, actually, before anyone in the UK was talking about Netflix or anything right. like that. I mean, it is it is effectively does the same thing for BBC programs. Yeah, that was right the around UK. the time that ABC was starting to put their series on. But very little content. Yeah. They were just yeah. trying, to, trying to play at online. But I think the iPlayer was a, a technology that actually made it usable and accessible. And we've talked before about how that likely can be tied to that public service mission of, if you have this content, we should make it more accessible. Whereas in the States, uh, the attitude was much more like, we've got to lock this content down. We can't let anyone get a hold of it because then we won't be able to sell it in those other windows. Yeah. So And, and because of the because the BBC already had a, all those shows that people were enjoying anyway and was able to publicise the uh, the streaming service on its existing platforms, right. it took off. Mm-hmm. Um, it took off pretty pretty quickly. I mean, now other obviously Amazon and Netflix are, are you know are, are taking chunks out of that in the UK, but the BBC is still the, the kind of dominant player in TV down uh, streaming. So, uh, so to my mind, those are the things that kind of stick out as big innovations that um, that really helped. Um, I mean, we're an in- interesting, from a radio point of view, I think it's a slightly different story. I mean, everyone has sort of always expected radio to tail off and go somewhere else. But as I say, we've stayed pretty level, especially in speech radio, news radio, and now even slightly above uh, anything that we've had before. Um, on the kind of flip side of that, I guess, would be um, a few years back, I was very lucky to work on uh, uh, Radio One, which is the youth station in in the UK, and and that there you see, a, a, I guess, a more worrying pattern where uh, where you you can really track young people mm-hmm. kind of going off to different places. Mm-hmm. To this is a music station, so where Radio One used to absolutely dominate, where young British people got their music mm-hmm. tips from. 
used to I think it used to be known as the most listened to station anywhere in the world. It had wow. 10 million back in the 70s. It had 10 million people mm-hmm. listening to it. Now, just recently, I saw one of the uh, something, one of the cuts. It's down to like half that, down to five million. So you see, quite an exodus of of young people. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a big question there. I mean, where, how on in in terms of how you hang on to those people. I mean, we've uh, we know that we've picked up a lot of those people on social media mm-hmm. and on iPlayer, like I say, and, and changing habits. I mean, as a someone who's a sort of radio loyalist or an audio loyalist. I'm now really interested in how you can hold on to those people and hold on to their ears as well as their eyes and their clicks. In our other conversations about the U.S. marketplace with Lynette Clementson and Tamar Charney, I think one of the things that emerged was the way that in the U.S. digital distribution has been helpful for NPR to target a broader range of listeners uh, whether it's through the strategy of podcast or something like the NPR One app that allows really the equivalent of, of time shifting for audio. BBC Radio was already, as you've noted with uh, Radio One, reaching out to a lot of different audiences with the terrestrial signal. Has the BBC also expanded its programming using um, different ways of distributing? Uh, so in, it's interesting. So in, in terms of podcasting, the BBC does very well in terms of distributing radio shows that I guess are already that already exist mm. and are sort of pre-commissioned as radio shows for download on. Uh, in addition to the uh, iPlayer TV app that you can get on your smart TV or on your phone now, there's now a, a radio player app which is, I guess, a, similar to NPR mm-hmm. One, mm-hmm. Um, where you can um, get more or less any BBC radio show on demand. I and mean, the interesting thing is. We haven't done so much of uh, tailoring programs specifically for download, like what I would call a true podcast, mm-hmm. if that's mm-hmm. the if that's the uh, the right word. Um, and maybe seeking out. I mean, one of the things I'm interested in, in terms of audience trust is the the sort of mission of a BBC journalist has always been. It always tends to be to try and maximise, trying to get as many people as you can to bring as many people as you can into the tent, whereas it strikes me what we know about digital media is it, it finds niches around the place, mm-hmm. right? So, so I think it's, it's interesting to consider in the role of public media, can you chase a niche or is that kind of, is that, right. are you then doing, I would say in an old-fashioned BBC way, that would, you wouldn't really want to do that because that's, you're trying to serve as many people as possible, but... Uh, I'm interested in maybe we, maybe that is something we should look at. Maybe there is a way of doing that while maintaining a kind of uh, a a public service remit. Yeah, I was just reviewing the the recent uh, inquiry um, with the new is it the charter for um, and the discussion of of public service media and it and it's interesting that way in which that mandate for the BBC is at its core somewhat contradictory, right? It's to serve the, the population, which is noted, you know, everyone's sending in their money, and it's, it's not a, a little bit of money um, to the BBC. So the idea that you would both be able to serve that diversity and at the same time build common culture, I think, you know, that to me sounds like quite an incredible challenge to be uh, putting on programmers. Yeah, it is, and what's interesting is um, looking at how, um, especially uh, certainly, podcasting is changing media and standards and habits, or the way things are put together in this country, um, has has made me think about are there different things we could be doing in terms of, so for example, there are certain rules about 
or there are, there are conventions rather mm. about how we present ourselves on BBC Radio, which mm-hmm. is uh, the objective voice, mm-hmm. right, and the voice of God, and which, as it's called in inverted <laughs> commas, where you don't bring yourself to the story, or, or uh, and that actually is very people are getting used to, and their other media mm-hmm. consumption much more personalised, much more subjective viewpoints, and whether whether people. Uh, and and we've noticed that in terms of say our social media on the program I work on on our social media feeds, whereas I mean I think anyone on social media has noticed this. Whereas when we first started, it was a great way to like hey well, this is what we're up to. What do you think? Now they're very much uh, there's there's a lot more criticism of you know you guys are too biased this way or too biased that way, or I've looked up your backgrounds and you can't possibly speak for you know for the for the common man and all. Uh, so there's a there's a lot more kind of second guessing of what mm-hmm. we're trying to do, you know. Maybe we can go further in terms of opening up who we are, and um, just to kind of regain regain public trust. There was a, well, it was part of my fellowship. I was lucky enough to attend the uh, online news association conference in DC. There was mention there of the view from nowhere is actually pretty hard. It's a hard thing to defend, mm-hmm. right? If you're trying to if you're trying right. to be, uh, and that's the difficulty with objectivity can sometimes seem like the I guess the view from the view from nowhere so that how we deal with that is a is a huge question and you know you talk about how the BBC you kind of have to avoid voice one of the things that NPR has kind of embraced in their podcasts and the programs that they're putting out um, now in more of the digital space are voice driven programs so they've got like Sam Sanders show it's been a minute who whose name I think has been dropped on every episode of the public media series right. so far but it's a show that's very much driven by his personality and his yeah. voice, so it's a, it, it's a bit of a different strategy. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's not. I think, you know, it's not like there's a ban on personality yeah. or anything. But it's it's there's there's the framework of the way the BBC is set up and regulated that I guess it you know requires a kind of extra bravery to use that mm-hmm. voice uh, in a BBC context than it would do mm-hmm. in you know just if you're setting up your own podcast or if you're working for. If you're doing a podcast for one of the for one of the papers in the UK or something, where sort of strident personality and opinion are kind of part of the brand, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, how we, how we, how you find that voice and maintain that the public service is really interesting. Now, does that add pressure to you in your reporting to kind of maintain that neutrality and maintain that voice? Like, do you feel an added pressure when you're making a story to kind of, oh, how do I be objective here? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the BBC is constantly um, monitored, if, you know, uh, if that's the right word, by um, the, by the newspapers, by the regulators, by the public. I mean, the big thing we went through just um, just a few months ahead of when Donald Trump won the presidency. Here, we went through Brexit in the UK, and there are a bunch of it wasn't entirely the same, but there are a bunch of similarities yeah, in terms of the way uh, the media had to examine itself afterwards and. And look at whether we've done a good job in terms of um, objectivity, and the, and then certainly the shock to the the Beltway class, if that's the right word. Um, a lot of that played out in very similar ways, and 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 the the BBC was kind of caught up in that a lot. So the objectivity is highly scrutinised. And you're right. I think when when people put together reports, it's something that's absolutely front and centre in their in their minds. So your focus while you you're here is is looking at the question of of public trust and and how it's it's been eroded from media. Do you find or do you feel like there is a, a difference in the status of public trust of commercial media versus public media, or are you only looking at public media? 
Um, so I'm very interested in what we can learn from a BBC perspective. I mean, the interesting thing is the BBC is still very highly regarded, especially in, in the UK, but it's in the context of a growing scepticism mm. about, about the media um, and about establishment institutions generally. So it seems to be on a trend where, um, where that would decline. And that, but I think from a, that trust issue is most interesting and most relevant from a public mm-hmm. media point of view. I mean, the BBC is a public service to that extent, and everyone I know who works there is very public-spirited. So the idea that we might somehow lose that connection with the, uh, with the, with the audience is, is, um, is pretty scary. So uh, that's, I'm trying to, to look at things that we might be able to do to, to, um, to stay on top of the game. Are there particular things that you've identified as causes um, for the erosion? Well, that uh, I'm, I've been looking at at the um, so the, there's a, there's a few different things mm-hmm. going on, um, and one of the things that I'm very conscious of is how technology has eroded trust in institutions across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's very interesting to go to Washington, um, as I said a couple of weeks ago. And it feels like for all the sort of daily stories around this incredible presidency, there's a real palpable sense that the power isn't isn't perhaps what it used to be. And you have the same, and that was, to me that was, uh, it was very paralleled with what's gone on in, in the UK where we had a, a general election in, in which it seemed to, to be clear that actually the parties, the political parties aren't as strong as they used to be. And it seems that the audience, like people out there, have figured this out, but no one really knows where the power's gone. Um, so, you know, has it just yeah. dissipated? Has it gone to other places? So one of the big themes that I'm looking at is is big tech, right? And, and you know, how much has, and to put it kind of crudely, how much has power shifted mm-hmm. from D.C. to Silicon Valley? Sure. Um, because you feel that in Europe, uh, it, I think you feel that here, there's a, there seems to be a momentum in the media and elsewhere to kind of pick up on that and wonder whether we have scrutinised how power and technology work together effectively. Um, on a day-to-day basis, I know it's something I've wrestled with as like a news editor in the UK, is that, uh, so our programme that we work on uh, is mainly focused on like Westminster politics and so the accountability relationship certainly has has worked pretty well in that if you want to put a major politician on the radio to ask them tough questions about what they're doing, you call them up and they say, yeah, okay, we can do that. I mean, they'll say no a few times, but eventually there's a sort of system there. Uh, and when it comes to technology, it's, you know, if you want to get an interview with YouTube about, you know, beheading videos or something, that's, you, no it's, re- yeah, it's really hard thing to do. So, you've, so, that's only that's something I noticed just kind of by the by as a sort of day to day practitioner, if you like. And now coming here and thinking about the big reasons for um, the sort of gap in trust, I wonder whether there's something there about, you know, it's our job to hold powerful people to account, and you know, fundamentally that's what we're supposed to do. And it seems that there's a gap there at the moment. We're struggling both to identify, to really get a handle on where the power is, and then to um, to 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 hold it to account when we in in the best way we can and certainly in the way we would conventionally with old fashioned political power.
Yeah, it definitely seems like the tech companies, the big tech companies in Silicon Valley, are really struggling right now yeah. to even figure out how they play a role, which is a little funny given how they created the technology. And they don't seem to kind of have a complete understanding of the ramifications of what they've done. And that's kind of playing a role in this as well. The, the technical realm and the cultural realm, those of us who follow these things have had a sense that, that, uh, that they were enmeshed and that there would be consequences, but we hadn't been certain what the consequences would be, I think, probably, until really the last 12 or 18 months. And, yeah. and now, now we're starting, I think, to, to pull apart some of those questions and uh, to, to ask maybe even more sophisticated questions than, you know, is Facebook a media company? Exactly. Right now? Instead, yeah. like, well, what are its motivations to do X or Y? And, and really... Uh, if it has motivations to do X, it might have motivations to do Z instead. Right. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing is, I, I don't want to be, um, you know, I'm reading about it. You can you can very quickly be kind of uh, pigeonholed as a as a kind of doom monger. I'm not, you know, I'm not like one of these kind of. I'm not saying we need to look at why how Facebook stole the election kind of thing. It's more. It just occurs. It just seems that's what's happened with elections both in Europe and the U.S. is they've highlighted there's a whole bunch of stuff mm-hmm. going on that we weren't paying due attention to and it's you know it doesn't mean that anyone necessarily has to wind up in jail it just means that we need to look at this and you know and maybe there's room for more public pressure that comes about by being more informed by a more alert media um that will sort of as we go to kind of the next generation of of um of all these technologies that seems to me like a pretty important thing right and i think like there are rules actually in, in the U.S. where there are actually fairly few regulations on media. There are rules around money and reporting of, of who's giving the money for things like political ads and the, the recognition that the reason we had those rules had to do with the, the power of those the broadcasting platform and and now we have other platforms that are just as powerful and so rethinking and unregulated at this right time. at this point right because those rules were designed not for advertising platforms those rules were specific to broadcast um, and, and even I don't I'm not sure how they apply to cable if they do and so sort of that that recognition that this other sector isn't just off by itself in this magical, um, unregulatable land, but that actually they, they too are doing uh, parallel practices and, and need to be considered regula- from a regulatory perspective as, as to have the power that they do. Yeah, and I think, and it's just think it's really interesting in terms of how sort of day-to-day journalism works that you've seen a big shift with, you know, the tech beat used to be the techie guys did the new gizmos kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then we've seen, uh, obviously, the, just in the last year, like political reporters get stuck in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and media that, reporters getting and thrown media, in there as well. And, and how, that, uh, how that all kind of washes through, you know, is it something that we just all are now more interested in? Or, you know, do you kind of reorganise a newsroom to kind of mm-hmm. go at it uh, in a harder way? I, I think all that that's really interesting. How does how do you use social media? Um, do you feel like um, British journalists engage it differently, or especially ones working for the BBC, given their mandate? Uh, so the BBC had um, the BBC had a again was quite early to the game in terms of making sure that because we have this because we're under such heavy public scrutiny, making sure that 
BBC reporters, producers, editors were conscious that a tweet is a public statement mm-hmm. and whether or not it's on behalf of the BBC in a corporate way, you're going to be uh, held to account for being a BBC employee. So basically um, the policy that the New York Times has just put yeah, out within the last so that, few weeks. Exactly. Okay. I read that. I read yeah. that and I, rem- I was thinking, oh, I remember sitting in the newsroom like at least eight, nine years ago in the BBC and having the same wow. kind of edict uh-huh. passed down because we, because we got caught out with a couple of you know stories that sure. uh, went around the papers of like, you know, junior BBC producer does some stupid thing. But weirdly, what I'm wondering is, I think as a, as a, as a result of that, if I'm honest, that, that had did it did the job in terms of like the corporate reputation, but also scared a lot of people off mm. from using it and and put a lot of the effort into uh, corporate accounts. So like we have a program, I work on something called the Today Program, and we have a I've spent a lot of time working with the team that puts that out. That but what you realize actually still people want to communicate with people, right? Mm-hmm. Not not faceless accounts, um, and obviously the the sort of top on air. TV and radio reporters do have their own personal accounts. I mean, they still uh, think very closely about or very carefully about what they mm-hmm. what they write. Um, but uh, yeah, I think there there may be now. I'm wondering whether the dial <laughs> should go back a bit, and there should be more people should feel feel a bit freer to sort of show a bit of personality. But um, I mean, but joking aside, the, the the I don't know whether it was covered much here, but the. Um, uh, so one of the more prominent BBC journalists is the political editor Laura Koonsberg, and she had to, she's had, had to have a bodyguard on occasion oh, because of because she's been exposed to the threats that people are, uh, I guess, familiar with anyone who's, who knows about social media. But that's so that was a kind of weird thing that happened uh, recently, and it's a symptom, like I say, of that change where. So if you just look at the like the corporate accounts, the BBC mm-hmm. now are constantly. Um, it's much more a sort of running critique of mm-hmm. everything we do, <laughs> um, uh, and that's uh, you know and that and sort of how to engage with that and not lose the um, the uh, the loyal um, listeners at the same time is is a tricky one. So you think the the job of regaining the public trust is is something that is the job of the BBC, or is there any other? way for that dynamic to to change uh yeah i think it's i mean in, in as much as it's your it's within our hands i think it is our job i mean it's, you know maybe it's a the a suspicion towards elites i don't mm-hmm. know whether it's like a long-run historical mm-hmm. trend or it's just a blip that mm-hmm. we'll get over um but you know I mean, that's out of our hands that's like history <laughs> but um i think it is you know and, and the bbc um i mean the great thing about the bbc is, is this, it's this sort of uh, long-standing and enormous institution so far it's been pretty good at kind of adjusting and and taking on you know uh, taking on new technologies or new trends or adjusting to what what the public wants and like I say I think we're in a slightly new phase now about how we do that and because uh, other media companies with who are sort of a bit more fleet-footed a bit more open about who they are and where they're coming from seem to me to be changing the conversation a bit um, but we're pretty good at kind of absorbing outside influences and, and using that to, um, I mean, it's a super tanker, right? The BBC, right. It, doesn't, it doesn't turn on a dime, but you know, you can sort of steer, adjust a course. It's, it's interesting to hear your perspective because I feel like there is a real parallel in the States, um, 
the part of it is certainly being fueled by by some of the political rhetoric that has, has you know castigated media or the quote unquote mainstream the, the fake media. news media that the, those insults that are being flung right. But I think you know the the pro or so I've diagnosed the problem here as really the problem of commercial news media, and so you know, CNN has no mandate to actually inform us. They're trying to attract as much attention, so they do things that attract attention. They have, you know, the spectacles of talking heads yelling over each other. They bring people like Corey Lewandowski on the air. It's it's cheap to produce. It's sensational. And so the fact that we don't have, we have this critique, I think there is a critique to be made of U.S. news, but it's of commercial news um, rather than this conversation about quote-unquote mainstream. But it to hear that actually the institution is struggling in a similar way in an environment where it isn't a commercial mandate that has caused an, an erosion in content or you know an, a, an appeal to baser instincts. And I think that fuels an idea that there's a broader phenomenon at play. Sure, but it's not... I mean, the BBC isn't, I guess, isn't immune to metrics, right? Or, sure. Or... Um, or immune to trying to get clicks because we still have to stay relevant. We still need to be popular. We need to have yeah. large audiences to justify ourselves. But uh, and obviously we exist in a media landscape that goes in certain directions, and you know we'll inevitably be taken in those directions. However, I think what's really interesting to to go back to that idea of um, how do you how do you sort of cover technology companies or how do you think about those? That does strike me as somewhere where as public media where you're not worried about where you're or at least where your funding is not beholden to anyone related to any any big corporation mm-hmm. that should be somewhere where some an area where we have a responsibility and an ability mm-hmm. to stand out and do things that maybe other people wouldn't necessarily be ready to do and that's a little bit different from american public media which still relies on a little bit. It's it's not as much on commercial, but they still kind of have those commercial interests who do provide funding for their shows and do play a role in kind of fun- making sure that public media has the base that it can use to continue to operate. Right. That's You don't have the equivalent of the uh, sponsorship messages. No, now. no. So there's no, there's no advertising. Um, Whatsoever. Um, no. But it, but it is. It, I mean, it, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the, I've also heard the criticism of the BBC that because of the the BBC can be overly cautious in its mm-hmm. journalism because um, because the BBC exists only at the at the behest of Parliament, right? You know, there needs to be an act of Parliament to uh, to allow the levy that mm-hmm. allows it to exist. Um, that you know, in a way, we're kind of more open to political attack. I mean, not on a day-to-day basis, but over the long term, you, you could you could see that. So, uh, I've had have heard it argued that that is that there's a sort of self-regulating hive mind within the BBC mm-hmm. that makes people timid because we don't want to rock the boat because that would be you know that would that would kind of create open a space for political attacks. I mean, there's always there's always there are always there's always pressure, right? It doesn't um, it's not being in public media at least in the UK uh, I mean I'd say most people in the BBC would argue they probably feel more pressure because of the public scrutiny than say the tabloid uh, newspapers which are extremely popular and um, commercial um, but uh, and have 
strident owners with <laughs> with opinions. Um, but you know, everyone. I guess everyone thinks everyone perceives the pressures they're under and underestimates the pressures other people are under. Do you have you had a chance to think about these issues in context other than the U.S. and Britain? Or do you think that public trust in in media is is an issue globally? Um, well, I think what one of the thoughts that has occurred to me since um, being here in in at the University of Michigan. And having the chance to study a bit more about certainly about the uh, a bit of, about the history of journalism and the media in this country is it strikes me that we have been lucky in the West and in the U.S. Certainly, um, you know, if you wanted to draw a line from Watergate up until a couple of years ago, where it, that feels like a bit mm-hmm. of a golden age in terms of public trust and explosion of outlets and uh, the sort of power of the media and what's as I learn, you know, as I have this privilege of learning more about it, you know that it wasn't always like that. And certainly I know from uh, travelling, uh, being lucky enough to travel around the world with the BBC, it's not like that in other countries, right? And, and um, since uh, with Brexit and the Trump election, um, I've heard it said a lot, uh, both on the, B- the BBC and elsewhere, that people in India and Turkey and other countries where they're used to pressure political pressure on journalism and journal and journalists being uh, challenged all the time for when they when they are putting pressure on politicians uh, it feels like maybe we're sort of normalizing to a, to a level uh, that's more consistent around the world and uh, throughout history and maybe journalists uh, have been sort of a bit on a pedestal we've been lucky for the last uh, couple of generations and you know maybe that won't last but that's certainly an interesting time one last question. Uh, the big tech companies that we've talked about, I think from a U.S. perspective, it's easy to forget that they're American. Can you talk a little bit about the dynamic of experiencing the sort of the market control and, uh, and domination of different communication channels from outside the U.S.? And, and how uh, are you regularly aware of them as American companies? Uh, that's a really interesting question. And obviously, in terms of the way we've covered how they're regulated um, in the European Union, which Britain is uh, still just about a <laughs> member of, uh, has you know has been the most strident um, in terms of uh, trying to uh, get them to pay taxes and also on privacy, um, and so that I think at those moments it does feel like a kind of um, you know U- Europeans trying to hold American uh, Americans to account. Uh, on a day-to-day basis, it feels more. It's more. It feels like more of a global thing, right? They've. Um, there doesn't seem to be anything specifically. Uh, I don't hear, hear complaints about them couched in terms of. I remember, you know, when it, like say a generation ago, when people were worried about McDonald's and Coca-Cola kind of, uh, you know, taking over European diets. That was. I remember that was very much couched mm-hmm. as a kind of. You know, the, uh, these as, with a sort of element of anti-Americanism. Uh, I think it's such a global issue now, and the tech companies are so global in their dominance that it doesn't feel so much like that. I mean, the the interesting thing for the BBC, uh, as I guess all media companies, is you know now we are busy like busy providing content for uh, for these big media companies that produce no content of, right, of their right, own right. Um, and uh, it's, I think it's, a, it's an open question is that huh. um, you know as long as um, there's different ways of thinking about it. I mean, it's, our job is just to get our 
content to as many people who who want it, right? So if, so in as in as much as that's happening, then that's a you know then great. It's um, an interesting point because the, the conflict's a little bit different. I mean, so here. And I think one of the things that U.S. commercial media companies are struggling with is the idea that if if you're a New York Times article and you're distributed on Facebook, the degree to which then Facebook is driving much of that revenue and maybe owning the data about it. Um, And so because the real drive is to send a reader back to the Times website so that they can see the ads on the Times site. And that's a very particular dynamic. It's not just that they want to get that content out there, whereas since BBC content wouldn't be um, paid for under advertising anyway, um, it's sort of that... In thinking about the social media companies as sort of having this free ride and free access to content, I guess the dynamics are, are a little different. I guess I mean I'm like I'm not a I'm not a corporate uh, I don't deal with a corporation at that level, and so I'm not um, a party to what the the thinking is. And and there is I mean if you notice if you visit BBC.com in the US, if you visit the US face new that we do carry advertising we, mm. um, because outside the UK. Right. Um, uh, we get a bunch of revenue um, from from being commercial, um, so that's that's a whole <laughs> that's a whole a whole other level of what I do know from as a, from perspective of a for a producer, you know, up till now, definitely the thought has has been this is where the eyeballs are, mm-hmm. our content needs to go where the eyeballs right. are. Let's let's just you know produce as much as we can and put it out there. Um, I can't see that changing because the eyeballs aren't going to, you know, until the eyeballs shift somewhere else. But um, I guess if there is this, if the kind of the change of public attitudes towards either these platforms becomes more than kind of muttering amongst uh, people like me, <laughs> uh, you know, then maybe, you know, maybe that maybe that will change. As I say, the, uh, historically, BBC is pretty good at adapting um, with with. Uh, the way things go, but you're right, the pressures are are different. So often in any business, it comes back to the metrics. And so if the BBC's mission can still be accomplished, even if the the listener isn't in the terrestrial audience, right? The, if, if I listen to this, um, you know, however it's delivered a podcast or something like that, you know, maybe my esteem for the BBC and the money that I, I spend as, as part of my license fee, you know, I still regard it highly uh, as long as, Internally, the fact that maybe I'm not showing up uh, in that place where I used to show up, and, and that's then being held against the content, then I guess it, it, it all washes out. Yeah, as long as I mean, I guess the bottom line is is love, right? As long as, <laughs> yeah. as long as, as, long, trust. as long as we have trust, yeah. As long as yeah, as long as I think, uh, like I say, again, I've never I've never sat in like a top level meeting like that, but certainly as a producer, what you feel is as long as you're producing content that people like and will uh, keep their loyalty to the corporation and allow it to continue to exist um, on the basis that it's funded then then that's a virtuous circle right and you're doing a good and that is that is a great freedom I know friends uh, who've left the corporation to go and work in uh, the private sector and they always comment that's the that's the thing that you miss right Mm. the thing uh, that for all the frustrations of working in a you know high, very political environment in many ways, um, the fact that you d- you're, you don't have to talk about a bottom line is pretty liberating. Well, and I think that is a great it note to end <laughs> on. John, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. 
And now it's time for the last segment of each and every show, What We're Watching This Week. Now, as I walked in to record this episode, I found out that Amanda and I were actually preparing to talk about the same thing. Amanda, what are we watching? We are both watching Better Things, I think, for the first time in, in two years' worth of podcasts. I think it might have happened once, but it, it, it's rare that we actually catch up things at the same time. Better Things, Pamela Adlon's FX. I was about to call it a comedy, but it's really just a half-hour show from her perspective. I, I think that's a good way to describe it. it. The episodes I've seen so far, I'm not all the way through the full season yet, uh, it reminded me so much of, of Louis, um, and it's so nice to see stories with that same kind of rich texture being told uh, about a different life experience. So I, I am again enjoying the, the second season just as much as the first. Yeah, her voice is strong and powerful. and It's an amazing time, I think, for U.S. comedy. It finally is, is having that same kind of range of change and adjustment that drama experienced in, let's say, the last decade, and, and perhaps on FX. And that's it for this week's edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about Media Business Matters, you can go to amandalots.com and click on the podcast link at the top of the page. If you want new episodes in your feed as soon as they're available, including the last episode of our public media series with a very exciting guest, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or on the Google Play Store. And if you subscribe to us on those platforms, please rate and review us. It helps new listeners find the show. Amanda, where can listeners find you on Twitter? At Dr. TV Lots. That's D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. And you can find John Shields on Twitter at John E. Shields. That's J-O-H-N-E-S-H-I-E-L-D-S. And you can find me at Alex Zintner. That's Alex I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back soon with our last interview in the public media series.